Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, your host. On Schoolhouse, we really work to bring you stories about the work that the Communities for Just Schools Fund community partners do every day to organize at the grassroots and build power to change circumstances in schools. And those circumstances for far too many children of color and poor children are dire. Children are put out of school for minor misbehavior and developmentally appropriate conduct. They are punished for things inherent to their cultural heritage, like the way they wear their hair. Too many children of color are forced into behaviors like sitting up straight, making regular eye contact with the teacher, walking a painted line to the bathroom or to the cafeteria, sitting silently during lunch. When they don't comport with these directives, they are punished. Nationally, black children are 3.8 times more likely than whites to be suspended from school. But in one school district in particular, in California, black children were 500% more likely to be suspended than white children. In Bakersfield, California, we have seen an historic settlement agreement with the school district led by my guest today, Eva Patterson, who is the president and founder of the Equal Justice Society and who worked very closely with several civil rights organizations to take the school district to task and ensure their fair treatment of children of color in the district. Eva Patterson, welcome to Schoolhouse. Thank you for being on the show. I'm so delighted to be invited. Thank you. So first, what is Equal Justice Society? What do you do? I've been a civil rights lawyer since 1975. Some of your listeners probably weren't even born at that point. I started off as a legal aid attorney in East Oakland, representing people in car accidents and uh, people being beaten by their boyfriends. And I went over two years later to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which was formed at the request of President John Kennedy. We did a school desegregation case in San Francisco. We defended the family of an unarmed black man who was shot in his bed in San Francisco. Mm. So we litigated, we did employment discrimination and the like, but the right wing started taking over the federal courts. It used to be that you got appointed to the federal bench if you were a good lawyer and you were considered to be a person in good standing in the legal community. But the right wing decided that that wasn't enough, and they started having ideological litmus tests. You had to be anti-choice, you had to be anti-affirmative action, you had to be for increased executive power. So as the years went on into the 1990s, it became increasingly, though not impossible, but increasingly difficult to win in federal court. In addition, many progressive people looked at the right and saw how effective they were. Mm -hmm. They were very good at using language and messaging to get people to act against their own interests. Instead of the estate tax, they called it the death tax. And so the messaging of the right wing was very effective. And we felt that the progressive community was in issue area silos, and we didn't have a common view of the best way to have a good world without discrimination, with all the things that we want to see in a good world. In addition, and this may be too wonky for people, but it's part of why we were founded. After the Civil War, the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution was passed. In addition to making citizens of the newly freed slaves, it also had a very critical clause called the Equal 
Protection Clause, mm-hmm. which said that the United States Constitution would not allow inequality. Now, in 1896, when Homer Plessy mm-hmm. challenged the separate seating cars for black people in New Orleans, this was taken to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unfortunately said separate but equal was correct, and you could separate the races, and the Equal Protection Clause was not violated. As most of us know, that was struck down Mm -hmm. in the brilliant case of Brown versus Board of Education. What I did not know about this 1954 case was that Charles Hamilton Houston, Thurgood Marshall, Jack Greenberg, Constance Baker Motley used social science to show that separating the races gave white people a false sense of superiority Mm -hmm. and black people a false sense of inferiority. Um, I'm talking a lot. Um, I haven't quite answered your question. And if I'm talking too much, <laughs> no, no, go I ahead. Stop. You're, you're good. Okay, okay. In any event, these reactionary courts that I was talking about decided to gut the 14th Amendment. And in 1976, in a case out of Washington, D.C., involving the desegregation of the Washington Police Department, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court decided that the only way that the 14th Amendment could be violated is to show that the discrimination was motivated by racial animus or that the discrimination was intentional. The law we preferred was to say, if you can show that 100 black people applied to be a police officer in Washington, not one was hired, yet 100 white people were applicants for positions in the Washington, D.C. Police Department, and all of them were hired that statistical disparity would be enough to show that the 14th Amendment had been violated. So the reason the Equal Justice Society was formed was to overturn Washington versus Davis. Mm -hmm. In the words of my friend Teddy Shaw, who used to be general counsel of the Inc. Fund, Cheryl Eiffel has that position now, we needed to reclaim the 14th Amendment. We also wanted to use law, social science, and the arts to transform the nation's consciousness on race. Mm-hmm. So that is the genesis of the Equal Justice Society. We also wanted to make sure we were in coalition with other groups that didn't necessarily deal with racial discrimination, but might be for women's rights mm-hmm. or pro-choice or the environment. And we also feel that the arts are a very powerful way to get ideas across. It's more interesting to see a dance performance than to hear me give a lecture about equal protection. I don't know about that. No, I'm I'm kidding. I, I, I appreciate the thought behind that. And, I, you know, I think the arts are often an underutilized tool of engagement and of social justice generally. So I, I appreciate that. I litigated school desegregation and school discrimination cases for a few years. And I I have never seen a case like the Bakersfield case where the Equal Justice Society and the groups that you worked with really brought in theories about implicit bias, about racial anxiety and stereotypes. First of all, tell us about the context. What does Bakersfield, California look and feel like? It's very interesting, Allison, that you ask that because... A lot of Southerners, particularly, I believe, from Oklahoma and Texas, Mm -hmm. during their Great Migration, the white Southerners 
came up to the Bakersfield area. Mm. And so there's a big southern flavor there. In fact, my client, Dolores Huerta, calls it Calabama Mm. because (laughs) of some of the racial attitudes. You'll be driving around, you'll come across Merle Haggard Boulevard. Mm -hmm. There's a whole like Bakersfield sound in country western music. Mm. It's a very interesting community because it is in the Central Valley of California, and Bakersfield is where Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers did a lot of organizing Mm -hmm. because Latinos were treated very poorly in the fields. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just Latinos. There were also Filipinos who were very uh, involved in being farm workers. And so they were mistreated. They weren't given enough water. There weren't bathroom breaks. They were out in the hot sun. There was something called a short hoe that they were forced to use, which Mm -hmm. resulted in crippling injuries Mm -hmm. to people's backs. So part of what's going on in the Central Valley where Bakersfield is, is a farm workers' activism. Also, I learned after my three years down there that oil is a big deal Mm. down in Bakersfield. In fact, one of the things that our Latino clients were told is, well, you kids really don't care about education because after they graduate, they're just going to work in the fields or in the oil companies. It's like, what? The other thing you need to know is that Kevin McCarthy, who is Mm -hmm. very high up and is one of the young Turks with Paul Ryan and others, is from Kern County, which is where Bakersfield is. Mm -hmm. So you have a really large Latino community, not a very big African-American community. We're about 7% of the state, and I think we're about 7% of the people in Bakersfield. So you've got a very isolated community. It's a five-hour drive from the area, two hours from Los Angeles. It's really hot. Whenever I go down there, it's often like 105 degrees. Mm. The air is very uh, polluted. It's very reactionary politically. The oil and grower communities really run Kern County and Bakersfield. It's probably the most conservative county in California. So those are ingredients for a very toxic environment for people of color and for particularly black and Latino kids. Mm -hmm. One of my clients says he believes that the Klan still is active in Kern County, which is where Bakersfield is. How many schools are there in the district and what's the student population? Kern is the second largest school district in California. It's second only to Los Angeles. So it's a huge, sprawling district that encompasses Bakersfield, but also the little town of Arvin, where we went and had a a meeting with clients on Valentine's Day a couple of years ago. That town is 99% Latino. I think I was the only black person in the town that evening. So it's a sprawling, sprawling school district. So... This case, how did it come to your attention, and how did you form the coalition that became this legal social science force in Bakersfield? The way this case got started to me is fascinating. I was thinking about this in preparation for talking with you. California has a civil rights coalition that started in 1985 when Clarence Thomas was the head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Mm -hmm. before he went on the Supreme Court, he tried to make it more difficult to 
prosecute employment discrimination claims. So a bunch of lawyers came together and started the California Civil Rights Coalition. It was primarily a Bay Area coalition. Thomas Sines, who was general counsel for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund, or MALDEF, got involved in the coalition, and we became truly statewide. We were meeting in various parts of, of the state. In fact, one of our meetings was in Bakersfield, and one of the members of the steering committee was Camila Chavez, who is Dolores Huerta, the famed organizer's daughter. So I spent many years on the steering committee of the California Civil Rights Coalition and got to know Camila, and she started to know that the Equal Justice Society was totally in, in alliance with the aims of the uh, United Farm Workers struggle. In fact, one of our meetings was down in Bakersfield, and Camila took us out to La Paz, which is where Cesar Chavez is buried, and showed us where all the organizing went on. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of proved our bona fides as coalition people by taking the time to really go out there and understand where Cesar Chavez did his work. In fact, one of the facilities is apparently haunted, so that was kind of interesting. So a couple of years ago, a Latino man was beaten to death Mm. by sheriff's deputies in Bakersfield in Kern County. So Camila called us to see if there was anything the Equal Justice Society could do to be of assistance. We connected her with John Crew, who used to work for the American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California, He ran their police practices project, so he connected with them. And then Camila was telling us, oh, by the way, there are all these injustices going on for Latino and African-American kids in the high school. So we started talking. Mm. The California Rural Legal Assistance Foundation had been working on issues of educational equity for years and had wanted to do some kind of litigation on the disproportionality in terms of suspensions and expulsions in Kern County. Mm-hmm. So Camila connected us with them. There is a local legal services program on the ground in Bakersfield called Greater Bakersfield Legal Assistance. So they were the ones getting the day-to-day calls from kids in the district who were being expelled for, like, not taking off their hats. Expelled from school, meaning kicked out for the remainder of the school year for not taking their hats off their heads. Yes, and suspended for things as ridiculous. And the information we get is that if you miss even one day of school, your chances of graduating plummet. We also hear that the common denominator of most people in prison is the lack of a high school education. So the school-to-prison pipeline is no joke. And we know that by not looking at the racial implications of why black and Latino kids are suspended, you're dooming our kids to prison. Mm -hmm. So the Greater Bakersfield Legal Assistance Foundation was representing individual kids. Then the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund wanted to engage in litigation that would protect the rights of Latino kids. The final piece of the litigation team was the law firm of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodridge, and Rosati. They represent big tech companies like Google. And I drew back on my experience at the Lawyers Committee, where we got large firms to work on cases on a pro bono or free basis. 
So we reached out to Wilson Sonsini, and in a heartbeat, they jumped in and said, oh, we'd love to do this case. And they were of invaluable assistance because they were able to organize our discovery, our documents, and the like. So those five entities came together, California Rural Legal Assistance, MALDEF, Greater Bakersfield Legal Aid, Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, and the Equal Justice Society. We then wanted to find African-American plaintiffs, so I reached out to my friend, Reverend Michael McBride, who's up here with PICO, Mm -hmm. and he was involved with organizing and working with faith communities throughout California. So he connected us with Father Bud Creature was part of something called Faith in Action, which was a bunch of faith people who wanted to take their faith beyond being prayerful and good and wanted to do good works. So he helped us organize the community meeting, and we ended up getting black plaintiffs to join the lawsuit, including the National Brotherhood Association. So that is how Latino activists, the faith community, and African Americans came together to bring this lawsuit against the Kern High School District. Once again, Bakersfield is in Kern County. I want to read a part of the coverage, and this was in The Californian on July 24th, 2017. It was written by Harold Pierce, and it says, KHSD, which is the school district there in Kern County, the Kern High School District, KHSD reported more than 2,200 expulsions in 2009, the highest of any district in the state, including those with higher enrollment. The expulsion rate of about 55 per 1,000 students was higher than the national average, which hovered around 1.5 per 1,000 students, according to the lawsuit. Meanwhile, Latino students were expelled at a rate 350% higher than white students. Black students were expelled at rates almost 600% higher than white students, the suit stated. Despite acknowledging its own trend of disproportionate expulsion rates, KHSD said in a statement that it's a nationwide trend, that it never violated any civil rights laws and would have prevailed if this case continued. So it seems clear to me, Eva, that there may be still yet work to do, still a bit of an uphill climb in terms of implementation of the settlement agreement and ensuring that the school district is on board with the requirements in that agreement. Is that true? It's exactly true. I've often said that if I had a tattoo, it would say born to sue. And (laughs) I like litigation. I like the notion that a black woman who was born when Plessy versus Ferguson was the law Mm -hmm. is able to take racist districts to court and races to court and try to get them to do the right thing. But quite frankly, for me, the most exciting part of the lawsuit is just about to begin. Hmm. And the question is, and I don't know the answer, and we're going to see experientially what the answer is. Can you transform a district with such a horrible racial bias, whether it's intentional or not, can you transform the district into a district that doesn't harm our children. I frankly don't know, Hmm. but we're bringing some of the best people in the country into the district to retrain everybody in the district 
to get them to be more aware of their implicit bias, to come up with specific ways of dealing with bias. For example, kids can no longer be suspended for willful defiance. That is such a nebulous mm-hmm. term. And what we find is this. And race, as you know, is extremely complicated. We can see from what's going on in our country that there are still white supremacists and anti-Semites abroad in the land. They're everywhere. And we know they are in Kern County. But we also know, and I believe to my heart, that most people do not want to be racist. Most people would like not to have decisions colored, if you will, by racial bias. Mm -hmm. But what the social science indicates is that in unexamined parts of our psyche, we hold views about black people, women, gays and lesbians, fat people, bald people, that impact our decisions. There are studies that indicate that most people feel that black people are violent, that we tend to be criminal. Mm-hmm. Many people are afraid of dark-skinned black people. They're certainly afraid of large black men. So something that a black man would do might scare a white female teacher, and the teachers are predominantly white female, right. whereas a little blonde white girl doing the same thing would not get suspended or expelled. I was talking to a white friend of mine who has a child with emotional problems, Mm -hmm. and he acts out in class. She said to me, if he were a black kid in Bakersfield, he would be suspended or expelled. Mm -hmm. But in the affluent white community, people go, oh, let's look out for his interests, Mm -hmm. poor kid. That's the way children should be dealt with. But we're more used to, in our society, of using punitive measures for black kids. So what we want to do is to go into the schools and let people know there are other ways of dealing with problems. My friend Jim Thrasher, who has worked with the California Teachers Association for years, talks about it in terms of classroom management. There are ways to manage disruption in your classroom without suspending or expelling kids. So that's one of the things we want to do. We also know through the social science If you have to write down why you're taking a particular action, it stops that automatic reflex that's driven by racial anxiety, misuse of stereotypes, implicit bias. So if teachers have to write down why they're suspending a kid, they might have to stop and think, oh, it's really because I'm afraid. This child isn't doing anything different than what a white kid would do Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't suspend them for. But once again... I've got to be honest with you, I don't know if this is going to work, but we're having a meeting in the district on September 15th with the experts who are part of the settlement so that they can sit down and listen to our clients, and these are some of the best people in the country dealing with implicit bias, with restorative justice, and non-punitive ways of dealing with kids who are acting out or who, quite frankly, have come from traumatized family environments, Mm -hmm. not enough food, a violent living environment. So when you get to school, you're traumatized and you may be acting out. And if teachers know the environment you're coming from, they might be more kindly disposed towards you. The last thing I'll say is that there's a professor at UC Berkeley named Jason Atanafua who has done research showing that if you can teach teachers to be empathetic Mm -hmm. with the kids in their class, 
the percentage of suspensions and expulsions go down, mm. and you don't even have to talk about race. So what's exciting to me is somebody who wanted to be a psychologist when I entered Northwestern 50 years ago and then saw rats and mazes, and I saw myself more as a female <laughs> Sigmund Freud talking to people. Life has come in a funny full circle mm-hmm. that I'm dealing, dealing with empirical work and empirical studies, and we're hoping that the social science research can be used to transform the district. I'm very hopeful, but I'm not naive. How did the courts respond to your weaving in social science in this lawsuit in the way that you did? Well, it's interesting. The court didn't knock out our claims involving the fact that implicit bias was one of the motivating factors for the disproportionality. And just as an aside, Mm -hmm. we also put in our claims that the intent standard under the 14th Amendment was not the right standard and the disparate impact standard should be the right one. That remained as well. So the fact Mm -hmm. that those theories survived the motions to dismiss brought by the school district was very important. In addition, we ended up going to mediation, which is how we got this great settlement. Mm -hmm. And the two mediators, Judges Infante and Warren, very much like the notion of implicit bias. They are from a mediation service in California called JAMS. Mm -hmm. And I had been asked years ago to give them a talk on implicit bias. So they were already familiar with the concept of implicit bias, which is getting more of a foothold in our thinking. So they knew implicit bias as a concept, so they were able to support our point of view. In addition, the lead counsel for the opposing team, Sloan Simmons, also understood the concept of implicit bias. And here's an interesting bit of information. In the middle of settlement, I gave a talk on implicit bias and mediation. And then I sat and listened to another presentation, and they said something that became very important in the settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. They said that often there's an emotional component to litigation. There's something going on that doesn't have to do with the ABCs of the litigation. There's Mm -hmm. something emotional going on. So we took that concept to the defendant, and what we found was the defendants thought we were calling them all racist. And while we thought some of the activity was racially biased, we didn't think everybody in the district was racist. Mm -hmm. The district needed us to acknowledge that we knew they were trying to improve. We didn't think they were doing enough, but it was important for them to have it acknowledged that they were trying to do better. So if you look in the settlement decree, there is language to that effect. And it was very interesting. Once we acknowledged that, a lot of the resistance to the settlement evaporated and we were able to get down to specifics. So I find this a fascinating dynamic in racial politics. Mm -hmm. I've read studies saying that if you call somebody a racist, they just shut down. There's no way they can hear you or deal with you. So we saw this play out in the negotiations that led to the settlement. And specifically in that agreement, what is the school district required to do? Part of what they're supposed to do, and they will do, and they started doing, they are going to bring in experts to take a look at the district and all of its policies around discipline. 
They're going to come up with a new way of dealing with discipline in the district. They can no longer suspend children for willful defiance. They can't suspend kids for using obscenity. Kids are being suspended for cursing, which is just silly because then they're not in school and that doesn't make any sense. To me, the most exciting part of the settlement is the fact that the district is going to bring in nationally renowned experts in alternatives to suspension and expulsion to take a look at the district and to retrain everyone in the district. What we learned through the settlement discussions is that it's not just teachers' decisions that are having an impact on our kids. It's bus drivers. It's cafeteria workers. Mm -hmm. It's counselors. It's everybody. So everyone in the district will be trained about implicit bias, racial anxiety, and the like. They'll be trained over a course of three years. We'll be revising their discipline. We also will be requiring them to give statistics on who the teachers are. Despite the fact that the district is overwhelmingly Latino, most of the teachers, and this is true in most districts around the country, are white. We try to get them to do more outreach to other communities in Atlanta and other places where there are lots of teachers of color, but they would not agree to that. So they're going to be giving us uh, statistics over time, and we hope that the experts will give them uh, guidance on how to recruit and hire and retain teachers of color. Because if there are more teachers of color, they will be more attuned, we hope, to what's going on with kids of color in the district. One of the things that we learned that was particularly disturbing was that black kids were not allowed to celebrate Black History Month. Hmm. We also learned that Cesar Chavez, his birthday is a state holiday, yet Kern County did not allow school to be shut on Cesar Chavez's birthday. The growers despise Cesar Chavez. Hmm. What we were able to get was kids to be allowed to celebrate Latino Heritage Month and Black History Month. So Mm -hmm. that was very, very important. It's a remarkably comprehensive settlement. I'm not even covering everything, but those are some of the highlights of the decree. But to me, the most important part of it is that the district is going to take a hard look at how it disciplines kids, and we have experts in mind science and who have dealt with restorative justice and less punitive ways of dealing with classroom management coming in and giving the district other ways of dealing with kids who are having problems. This lawsuit is about the systemic workings of the school district to ensure that wholesale it adjusts itself in order that young people can have access to educational opportunity and uh, thus to life success. But I'm, I'm wondering if, before we close, if you might share one of the stories of the young people uh, that are in this school district and have really been experiencing the harsh and draconian school discipline policies there. One Friday late afternoon, I got a call from a woman named Linda Reed. She had just gotten a call that her 17-year-old son was in the emergency room at one of the local hospitals Mm -hmm. in Bakersfield. By coincidence, but people say coincidences are 
God's way of staying anonymous. Mm -hmm. By coincidence, she happened to be talking to one of the people who does community outreach for Greater Bakersfield Legal Assistance, a man named Walter Williams. Walter said, oh, we've got to do something about your son. Let's call the Equal Justice Society. So Mrs. Reed called us, and we sprang into action. Mm -hmm. We found out the following facts. Her 17-year-old son had some emotional problems. His mother had breast cancer. His father had a degenerative nerve disease. Her young son had very severe emotional problems. So what his mother told him to do was when he was having emotional problems, go sit on the bleachers in the school. Mm-hmm. He then got a note from the principal and took the note into the classroom. So he took the note into the classroom and said, this is why I'm late. The teacher said, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Her young son, who's a 17-year-old, tall, black young man who plays on the football team. Mm-hmm. So he's the type of black person who irrationally frightens white people. Mm -hmm. Her son said, no, no, you can't kick me out. If you kick me out, I won't be able to play football. And I have this note. The teacher said, get out again. Mm -hmm. He then said, no, and didn't leave. The teacher then called campus security. Campus security told her son to leave. He then said, no, I can't leave. The teacher then called the campus police. The campus police threw him on the ground, Mm -hmm. handcuffed him, and hit him with a taser twice. Mm -hmm. He was in such bad shape that he had to be taken to the emergency room. We then got involved with the police officer, who we had heard through the grapevine later, had broken the arm of another student. And we were able, through being persistent, to make sure he was not sent to juvenile hall. Because once you go to juvie, You're in a world of trouble, Mm -hmm. and you're going to have this on your record, and you probably might end up in prison. This is the school-to-prison pipeline writ large. So we were able to get him out of the situation. He was returned to his mom that day, and he wasn't sent down the slippery slope to the prison system. He ended up suing the school district and got a very large settlement because This was completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We are hoping that the whole invocation of bringing the police into the schools will be changed by the consent decree, and that's part of what the district will be dealing with, coming up with a set of criteria for when the police are called. But just as many unarmed black people are shot, we're scary to white people. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be, and people need to look at that, but we are. It results in us being shot. It results in us not getting housing. Mm -hmm. It results in us not getting employment. And it results in black and brown kids being kicked out of school. So this case was just horrifying. He had a note. The teacher had been told that he had emotional problems and would be coming to class late. But the teacher was able to invoke a situation where this young man was tasered, handcuffed, Mm thrown to the ground in such a severe way that he ended up at the emergency room. It just happened that his mother was on the phone with somebody who knew us. What of all the kids who weren't that fortunate? So that case made me understand why our lawsuit was important and why changing hearts and minds, but also procedures and policies 
will keep our kids out of this school to prison pipeline. Thank you, Eva Patterson, for what you do every day. This settlement agreement is a first of its kind. It is a model for community lawyers, for community organizations, to marry the law and social science in the way that you did with this lawsuit and the ways in which the lawyers in the Brown versus Board of Education legal team also strategized to do. So I'm so appreciative of your work and your legacy. Thank you so much, Eva Patterson, for being on Schoolhouse. Thank you so much. We will prevail. These are hard times for people of color, but we've gotten through worse. Eva Patterson is the president and founder of the Equal Justice Society. Eva, if folks want to find you online, what's the best way for them to do that? EqualJusticeSociety.org. I'm also on Twitter at Eva Patterson, just one T in Patterson. Please uh, come join our listserv. We do fabulous work. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Thank you, Eva. And remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>